there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the palm-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. I'm, uh, I'm here today with Edward Thompson, Dr. Edward Thompson, who's an old friend and a colleague of mine in the, in the herbal and health world. So, so welcome, Ed. Really good to be with you. Oh, good afternoon, Sebastian. Like, likewise. So what a treat it is to have a chance to chat to you like this, Ed. Normally we, we sort of meet and are, and are dealing with things. So um, I just thought it would be really good to explore you know, your background and what's led you into health and your, your journey along the way. Ed is a, a, a herbalist and is a qualified uh, general practitioner as well and has got a, a, a plethora of experience in, in other medical uh, modalities as well. So we'll, we'll cover those uh, throughout our conversation. But um, Ed, we've known each other for a while. It's a, it's a you know, really good chance to have this chat. So, you know, I was just interested, what led you into health in the first place? What took you on this path? Well, I guess, like with many people, it was a personal journey at first. So I was, was um, at St. Andrews doing my first degree that had absolutely nothing to do with uh, health in any way whatsoever. I was wanting to uh, join the foreign office and be a diplomat or something like that with doing <laughs> language and management. And um, uh, I, got a bit, I got a bit depressed in my second year, I took the conventional antidepressants and they sort of helped, but they, they felt like they were not really getting to the root of why I felt the way I did. Um, and it started with me discovering something, discovering actually batch flower remedies and thinking, does, does, does this stuff really work? Um, being, being a bit sceptical at the time uh, and, and trying some and feeling some benefits. And then I decided to go and see a homeopath and it had, was extremely effective. Uh, my, my mood improved in a way that felt very hard to, to pinpoint to anything other than starting that treatment. And that began to whet my curiosity. Uh, so, so in my third year, uh, I decided that I would see if there was a course I could do. And the one I fixed on at the time, which is something I no longer practice, but was in a way an introduction, was an iridology course with someone called Farida Sharan. Um, and what was great about the course was not so much the iridology itself, although that was interesting, and, and uh, I remain open-minded as I do about every, try to about everything. It was the fact that part of the course was learning about herbal medicine, naturopathic medicine, diet, lifestyle. And as, as part of that course, I attended two seminars that had a, had a big influence on me. The first was with uh, Dr. Vasant Ladd, who came over probably one of the first times he came over to the UK and, and did, a, did a, a day or two days. And the other one was with Dr. Michael Tierra uh, of Planetary Herbology. So, and in addition, I found the herbal site particularly interesting. So I used to go to Herbs of Grace, which was near me down in down in the Suffolk area, and spend time in there where they used to mix up the herbal medicines to send out to patients and to people who ordered them and, and help mix them and, and generally start using herbs and, and become, become involved. 
I then decided that, well, this was really interesting. So actually, I think I might do Michael Tierra's actual course, which, of course, that's where we actually met Sebastian. Mm. Um, and, and I think that that course is a, a fabulous course. It was essentially correspondence, but with quite a, a, a fair degree of contact because he came over every year and, and I went and visited him in the States as well. And what was great about the course was that it was eclectic, which appealed to me. Uh, which I realise from a pure herbal perspective can be slightly controversial sometimes because we, we like to train in a specific tradition and can become very understandably attached to that particular tradition and, and feel a bit suspicious occasionally if a, a totally different tradition comes along and particularly suspicious of somebody who's done a bit of an eclectic approach. Um, so Michael's course, I, th I think, is, is brilliant. Uh, I think it still runs, I think. Um, and essentially, his main focus was Western herbal medicine, particularly influenced by Dr. Christopher and the American herbalist, because obviously that's where he trained with herbal medicine, but also traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, and, and actually, he goes into that in, in relative detail with a lot of Chinese formula in there. Ayurveda is there too, but it's more, it's more like the tertiary input, I would say, to that course. So the problem is, is when you do something like that, you start to think, well, that was really interesting, but actually I'd like to know a bit more about each one, and which I think it had the same effect on you, Sebastian, probably. A similar effect, you're right. So as, as a result, uh, I did a Chinese herbal course uh, at the Renshu College of Chinese Herbal Medicine. In fact, I am the only graduate. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was um, written in conjunction with Hilongjiang University in China, and it was a very comprehensive course uh, which involved... Uh, distance learning, but also face-to-face -face lectures and clinical experience. So I did that over a period of about five or six years because I was pretty busy doing um, other studies as well. And in addition, I thought, well, it'd be nice to know the Ayurveda in more detail. So in, um, I think it was 1994, I went over to Dr. Ladd in the States and did, at the time, what was the kind of the best Ayurvedic course you could do as a Westerner, um, short, short of... Uh, doing a Roberts for Voda and going to India and uh, signing up to the degree courses. Uh, and that was a one-year, very excellent, beautifully taught, inspiring course in, in Ayurveda, which was, a, I think, probably a very comprehensive introduction, I would describe it as. Having done all that and, and continually practicing this as well, I thought, well, actually, it'd be quite nice to learn the, the Western herbal scientific side more because that's something that Michael's course didn't particularly emphasize because that wasn't particularly emphasized by the American herbalists at the time or Dr. Christopher or, or that school of thought. So I decided to sign up to some Westminster University modules. So I was a module buyer. So I went along and I did pathophysiology and um, phytochemistry and botany, herbal materia medica. And over a period of about three years, I did about nine modules. And then I got to the point where I thought, well, I've got two options here. I could either do the, the, uh, the actual degree and, and finish off with filling in the modules I needed. But actually, I kind of got a bit of a scientific bug here, so maybe I should just do medicine instead. But by that time, I was in my uh, early 30s, which is a relatively old age to do medicine. And quite a lot of medical schools are, are, don't take graduates or, uh, of that age already. Um, so I did an AS chemistry and applied to several medical schools, including some of the more modern ones, because I thought they'd be maybe more open-minded to, to somebody who'd got a rather unusual background. Um, just to add to this, I also did a, a three-year full-time course in homeopathy as well earlier on. 
whilst I was also doing the herbal medicine. So I was very busy. I just really dedicated a good probably five years, really, fairly full-time to getting this, this knowledge as far as I could into myself. Um, so anyway, um, Leicester University offered me a place. They were very open-minded. They, they took the combination of my uh, St. Andrew's degree and my homeopathy three-year training and gave me a place on the health graduate course, which was fantastic because it was four years instead of five. Uh, and it had a bursary and it was a, it was a great idea. So um, at the age of about 30 to 33, I think, I started medicine. So I was definitely the, uh, the kind of the granddad of the class, really, although there were a couple of a bit older. <laughs> um, so that was a four year course. And during that time, I kept up my practice part time, which I built up in Cambridge, which I started in 1994 and carried on really until t about 2007 when I graduated uh, from the Leicester Medical School. So the thing about medicine, of course, is once you've done the first bit, you then have to do the second bit, the postgraduate bit. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a GP because I could see that the combination of being a GP and having the skill set that I'd already learned would be a really useful one to patients. I guess some people might ask, well, if you already had that skill set, why why be a GP? Or was it wasn't that enough? And and I think that for me the answer was no, it wasn't, because I could see that just as conventional medicine has therapeutic gaps, so a, a more integrated CAM approach also has therapeutic gaps, and also knowledge gaps. We we just don't have the level and degree of training in Western medicine that you get when you do medicine. Um, and although some of the herbal courses actually focus more on that, what they can't provide and which only medicine can provide is that experience of working in a hospital, seeing many, many different conditions and getting good at diagnosing in a, in a Western sense. So having uh, graduated, um, I then did, I've always been interested in teaching. So uh, I should have mentioned that I ran, I set up and ran a herbal course for um, Herman in um, uh, at the College of Naturopathic Medicine. So he rang me out of the blue one day because uh, someone from Michael Chera's course had said, oh, have you heard of Edward Thompson? I think they must have attended one random lecture that I gave. Uh, and he asked me to design and deliver his herbal medicine course, which I did. So we did a two-year part-time course, which was on top of them having to do a year in basic medical sciences and a year in naturopathy. So altogether, it was four years part-time. At the time, I would have liked the herbal course to be a bit longer, with a bit more hours, and that actually did happen subsequently when I left. Uh, so we did that, and I designed it as a Western herbal course with, uh, with some influence from Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, taking the parts that I felt could give the most rewards to a, her to a Western herbal medicine practitioner by taking some of those concepts in a manageable way to make them more effective and to individualize more their treatment. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed teaching that, and that was great. I did it in London and did it in Dublin as well. And uh, it's a great pleasure to still meet some of the some of my students who have now themselves experienced herbalists. It's a great course, Ed. You know, there's lots of great herbalists being turned out there. So uh, absolutely, absolutely. Positive. And um, I, I think um, it is it is a great course, and it, and it's accessible. And uh, I think Peter Jackson Main is is running it now and doing doing a very good job, from what I can see. In 2008, I did a, a year, what's called a demonstrator year, which is really an education year. So I taught medical students for six months of the year um, through the five years, different years and of medical school, and also did A&E 
as well. What was your main subject you were teaching? Anything. So it was um, anatomy, physiology, clinical examination, um, all, all the way up to uh, being involved with the fifth years as well. So, so it was a really, really interesting year actually, and, and it gave me the teaching bug even more than I already had it. Uh, and then I became a GP back in 2012, trying to integrate herbal medicine and the other skills in, into my NHS general practice. This, this proves a challenge um, because I think the terrain within the NHS and conventionally has changed towards uh, complementary and alternative medicine or integrated medicine. Um, with a very enlightened period in the 80s and early 90s where there was a lot of openness, uh, which then led on to a, a much more closed mind period where approaches that were different, that came from a different paradigm, weren't accepted and were maybe prejudiced against. I do believe that's beginning to change again now, which is good, but it's slow. And in the meanwhile, it did quite a lot of damage uh, to doctors like myself trying to use a more integrated approach within the NHS rather than leaving the NHS and doing it privately, which on one level is easier to do. Although difficult for a doctor still because there are many more standards and loops you have to jump through than if you don't have the medical background. So what I, did, what I found is the, big, the biggest problem in the NHS was accessing the herbal medicines for people. So, so really, uh, it, it was quite limited in that it would be more what I could recommend that they could find over the counter. Um, and tending as a, as a precaution to recommend THR because it has a kite mark. Although I do recognize that there are other products that are also very good quality, but for, for various reasons don't have a THR kite mark. THR is having a sort of full herbal medical license as such. That's right. So, so like a traditional herbal um, remedy that's um, licensed fire, fire processed it, you have to go through with the um, MHRA, uh, where basically something's been used for, I think it's about, about 30 years, and there's a good empirical evidence and justification as to why it might works that it's possible to get a license. Um, and I think, I think what's good about it in theory is that it, it guarantees a certain level of quality control, um, although so does GMP. So I think there are different routes to good quality control. There's mm. something you know much more about than me, Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, most, you know, often in herbalism, people are using, you know, powders or teas or decoctions or tinctures. And, and you're saying that when you're in your general general practice, that was would have been difficult to dispense or that there wasn't the dispensary to fulfill correct, for you? Correct, correct, exactly. So we, we, one of my practices, we got as far as the local pharmacy agreeing that they would stock the tinctures and potentially mix them up for me but but for various life reasons i, I changed practice um so that that didn't go ahead and i still think there are some possibilities there the problem is that nhs england made a ruling uh, a few years ago now i think it was about three years ago which basically it didn't legally prohibit but it discouraged strongly the prescribing of herbal and homeopathic remedies on the nhs um the way around that, of course, is that patients can have them, but potentially need to meet the cost of paying mm. for them. Uh, but that is an issue for some patients who just simply don't have the money to afford mm. that. Mm. Um, so 
because because of those issues, it's more what's available over the counter, which of course for for a herbalist is is a relatively low level of herbal medicine, I would say. Mm, mm. Um, not really representative of how herbalists would normally uh, exactly practice. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's an unfortunate limitation, and there may be ways around it, and, and I think they're worth exploring in the future. Um, but certainly in general practice, that's the current issue. I, I know that there, are, there is the clinic at uh, Whips Cross, for example, where they manage mm. to dispense the herbs. It seems to be quite sort of practice-based, doesn't it? Yes. Um, you know, Ed, you, you're alluding to it there. It's really interesting hearing you, you know, having experienced so many different forms of practicing medicine. You know, where, where do you find that, should we say herbalism or should we say more integrated medicine really, really works? And yeah, where, where are those real opportunities, you think, where herbalism could help serve society and help people achieve better health? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. So I think it is, there's two different levels there. There's self, the self-help. So there's patients being aware of simple, safe herbal medicines that they can use for simple self-condition, uh, self-limiting conditions. So mm-hmm. as an example might be echinacea um, species for a viral infection or um, elder, elder, elderberry or elderflower, Sambucus nigra, um, fructus or floss for, again, for viral infections, or licorice tea, um, glyceriza, glabra for a sore throat or laryngitis. So, and and I, I think that well, calendula cream for cuts. So simple self-care, which actually has the potential benefit of reducing the need of patients to actually consult their GP in the first place and hence reduce the pressure on the NHS. And and I think context is needed here too, because we do sometimes hear a narrative that herbal medicines are dangerous. And I I feel that that's a very overstated narrative. Um, I I think there's a number of things to be aware of. The first is that if a herbal medicine is taken appropriately by the right person and the quality of the herbal medicine is good and it's known to be what it says it is and it's a good quality um, and as long as the person is not taking any medication with which there might be major interactions and um, particularly ma- medication which is significant for maintaining their health and hence an interaction will be significant as long as you can rule those out then herbal medicine is extremely safe um, we have a very long history of knowing what's toxic um, you can you could you could you could buy your book if you had a lot of money, or certainly see a book that would be two thousand years old, which would tell you about if you wanted to um, poison um, mother-in-law, what you would use very specifically. So it, it's a long, long history of empirical use, and as a result, on the whole, it's very safe because it's had a, a massive empirical experience, albeit not formalised in the same way that it is now, with say a yellow card reporting where you can report if someone has an interaction to a drug or a, or a medicine so I think I think so self-care is important uh, and um, certainly compared to the number of people who would be admitted to hospital due to adverse drug reactions or who would present to a GP with adverse drug reactions and considering that the life the the annual use of herbal medicine probably sits around 40% in the population um, and uh, it is quite well publicized now the yellow card um, where where both manufacturers and patients can report, 
uh, I think generally speaking, the percentage of uh, reactions is, is tiny in comparison to conventional medication. And that's my observation as well. Um, as a herbalist, side effects are unusual and very, very rarely serious. In fact, I've never seen a serious side effect. Whereas with conventional medication, even, even some of the regular ones can unfortunately cause potentially very serious side effects. Uh, and that's not to say that that's the reason why they should never be used or that they're bad. It's just a reality um, between the two options. I was just going to say there's a real tension there, isn't there? Because, you know, medicine obviously is developed to help alleviate people's suffering and pain. And we've developed through science some remarkable insights into physiology and how the body works and how disease works. And yet um, it does seem that... Um, there is potentially a conversation around over-medicalization going on and how are we looking at this broader uh, way of looking after society. I, I, I remember reading an article, I think you wrote that something like, you know, 9 million people a year ending up in hospital across Europe because of um, drug uh, side effects. And of course, there are, you know, high numbers of people using them as well. But it does, f you know, what do you feel about the balance of our approach to medicine and, and how can we progress from a, a such a sort of chemical approach, should we say, to treatment to, uh, would we call it a more integrated approach, uh, and, you know, from some of your experience? Yeah, so I think, I think the first key is, is to individualize it to the specific patient and the specific condition. So where Western medicine is extremely good is acute conditions, um, acute infections, um, strokes, heart attacks, trauma it's 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 amazing it's life-saving um and it's fantastic and it's also extremely good at certain conditions which in the past would have been fatal such as diabetes type 1 diabetes um or um various adrenal issues which which would have been fatal in in the past such as addison's so it's enormously useful there hypothyroidism hyperthyroidism all of which in the extreme cases can can be fatal or, or have huge uh, morbidity effects on patients. So that that's Western medicine is extremely good at that. Um, it's extremely good if your blood pressure is 220 over 110, which we know has a strong association with strokes and heart attacks. Um, where it becomes maybe more debatable is where the patients have conditions which are not as dramatically acute and which are long-term chronic and possibly more lifestyle related. So examples of that would be type 2 diabetes, um, obesity, hypertension, um, where the degree of benefits begins to reduce as the person's blood pressure relatively reduces, the degree to which the, the number needed to treat um, becomes a lot greater so you need, to, you need to give maybe 100 people or 60 people or 50 people or 40 people a medication for one person to benefit, for example, whereas there are other scenarios where just one or two, one, one out of every two or three people is going to benefit. And, and Western medicine is very good at that. So there are these conditions which are lifestyle-related where herbal medicine can play an important role in helping um, we know that certain herbal medicines have an effect on, on um, high blood glucose levels, for example, and can have potential beneficial effects on diabetes. 
Um, and we know that some herbal medicines can have an effect on hypertension, although, although the problem that we have here is that herbal medicines operate in a different paradigm. So they tend to work better as part of a package which is combined with lifestyle and life changes. Um, they're less powerful on the whole to be used as single interventions um, for blood pressure. So, so you know, if you look at the research for hypertension, for example, and this is a, this is the problem we get to, and we'll get there in a moment. No doubt, you ask me about this. Is, is, is research and research paradigms. So, so herbal medicine can be very useful for that, and it can be very useful for therapeutic gaps, which are huge in general practice. There's a there's a there's a considerable minority of patients. In fact, I'd say almost a majority when you start looking at more chronic problems, where the ability of Western medicine to help them with some of their symptoms is very limited. And the risk is that these patients end up on polypharmacy. So they end up on defined, depending on how you look at it, four or five more medications at once. And the general research for that is that the more medication you take beyond maybe five medications, the less good are the health outcomes. It's a huge problem. It's acknowledged as a huge problem within medicine as well. And there's an increased emphasis on deprescribing. So trying to get people off medication that's unnecessary, particularly as they become older. So that's one issue. So actually, and this is an interesting one, isn't it? Does herbal medicine have a role to play here? Well, I would have thought, yes, it does with certain patients, definitely. Um, because if with the herbal medicines and the lifestyle changes, they can um, reduce their hypertension so they don't need to take any medication, conventional medication, or reduce their diabetes, particularly if somebody follows uh, the... Um, the type 2, the, the 800 calorie diet for type 2 diabetes, that's obviously for the appropriate person to follow it. It's not appropriate for all. Um, my sense is if they were to also combine it with herbal medicines, that the outcomes would be even better. Um, and the difference, I think, between, I'd like to think that a fundamental potential difference between herbal medicine and drug therapy is that drug therapy tends to correct, but once you remove the drug, the problem reoccurs. Um, obviously, that's not the case if it's a self-limiting condition like an infection. But for something like hypertension, for example, on the whole, if somebody's blood pressure is well controlled and you remove the antihypertensive, their blood pressure will go up again. What I think herbal medicines potentially have the ability to do is to help to return the body to a state of homeostasis where if you remove the herbal medicine, there is a good, a greater chance, should we say, that the person doesn't actually need to take anything mm -hmm. as long as they maintain a, a healthy lifestyle. Um, so I think that's a fundamental difference. And there are huge therapeutic gaps within conventional medicine in terms of osteoarthritis, for example. Um, what we can do is extremely limited. If you've, if you've got pain from your osteoarthritis, apart from taking painkillers, which of course do have their, their roles, um, they do also unfortunately have their side effects. And the older you become, the more prone you are to those side effects. There is little that we can do other than replace the joint, which of course again can be very successful. But there's people who fall in, in, in a lot of people who fall into a bracket where they're not yet eligible for joint replacement. Um, uh, but they're having to take pain relief, but they're getting quite a lot of side effects from the pain relief. And I think herbal medicine has a role to play there as well. And I, I just wondered if we could 
sort of explore this idea of vitalism a little bit and this idea of the being um, a, a vitality in life, uh, a language that is built into some of these traditional systems that perhaps is gaining more interest as people become more focused on, you know, personalized medicine, more individualized treatments, more empowered self-care. You know, how can we help our um, our society, uh, our listeners, if we're lucky, to absorb some of these principles of vitalism and maybe just share some of the things you've got? From it. Yeah, so vitalism is a really interesting concept. And, and in a way, that's one of the things that has been singled out as marking a big difference between the Western medicine paradigm, a way of looking at the world versus a more vitalistic way of looking at the world. And you, you see, so I guess with vitalism, the, the underlying theme is that there is something more than the sum of the parts, uh, which is very hard to exactly describe. Um, an inherent ability within the body to balance itself, an inherent um, desire and drive within the body to move towards a, a place of health psychologically, emotionally, and, and spiritually as well, whatever that means for people. Uh, and it's very strong in Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine. In fact, all the traditional systems of medicine, it, it, it's very strong, and they are vitalistic systems. It's strong in naturopathy as well. Um, and I think it takes on a different language when you look at maybe functional medicine, where, in a way, their version of, mito of, of um, vitalism is probably going down to the mitochondria and the, as, as the powerhouse um, and, and the rest restoration of homeostasis by looking at the root cause of disease. So I, I think that is another language, in a way, for, for vitalism. Um, and and I, I think probably you're beginning to see signs of it in Western medicine with joining systems up more and, and looking at, whole systems more um, and bio-psycho-immunoneurology and systems like that. Um, and just this sense that that which is living um, is in some way more similar to us than that which is not. And, uh, and of course, that's one of the debates that, that herbalists have often had, that actually when you take a plant, you're taking something that has evolved alongside with you and, and which is in some ways familiar to your to your body and to your physiology um, in a way that maybe a, a manufactured chemical medicine isn't. Now, of course, I'm the first to accept that some plants are highly toxic and some drugs are relatively gentle. So, so we, we have to be careful not to sort of sink into um, little black and white thinking. Yeah, absolutely. But one of the ideas that's always struck me with vitalism is the idea of synergy. And that when you use, for example, in some plants, you know, when you use them as a whole, a uh, complete plant, they become more effective than if they've got an isolated ingredient. And so you get this idea of vitalism of, of things working together, compounds, chemicals, environments, systems. You get this idea that you get a, a collaborative effect, you know, this idea of the, um, the, the, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. Absolutely, which almost extends to the whole Gaia principle of the, as as the Earth as an intelligent living organism that's very very interconnected with with lots of different levels of that. With herbal medicine being a level, with as you say the the immensely complex but ultimately simple synergy of of the, of, of a plant that has hundreds and hundreds of different phytochemicals 
um, which is why sometimes trying to identify the, the active ingredient in herbal medicines, unless they're particularly powerful with very obvious active ingredients like tropane alkaloids, is almost a bit of a fool's errand. Um, I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be done because I think it's interesting and it all leads to learning. Um, but I think we need to be aware that we might not necessarily find the answer that way. Or we'll find a answer, but not necessarily the answer. Meaning the complexity is so great that it is immeasurable. Correct. Correct. And, and maybe the mistake we make is trying to measure the immeasurable. And if we mm. fail to measure the immeasurable, we then tend to deny its existence. Mm. Mm. Wow. Interesting. And, you know, so how, how do you feel that healing or, or wholeness occurs, you know, when you're working in clinic, for example, and uh, there's the complexity of the range of patterns and uh, suffering and illness that you see. How, how do you think healing really works on what levels? That's a very good question, and I, I'm not sure anybody truly knows the answer to that. I, I, I can um, scrabble in the dark and give you my perceptive. Hmm. Always safe questions. <laughs> yeah, I really no, genuinely love your view, and, and, and uh, you know, like you say, there's not one answer, is there? But... So I, I think that the the first healing starts in listening in listening to a patient and giving them the space to tell their story um, and acknowledging their story not judging their story and allowing there to be silence potentially within consultations as well that's where the first healing begins so that's the concept of the the doctor or the practitioner as drug um, and, and I think that's immensely important. And I think it works in all systems of medicine, whatever system of medicine is being used. I know it's sometimes been used as a justification as to why um, CAM approaches work. It's purely the effect of, of, of more time and listening. Uh, my argument would be that that's a very powerful tool for all systems of medicines. Uh, sometimes a CAM practitioner has the advantage of more time to do it. So I think it starts there. I think it starts with because you've listened that you build up a very individualized picture of that patient. Um, and then the more you can help move their uh, mind and body towards a place of homeostasis or balance for them, the more you're going on that holistic, integrated healing journey. Um, and to me, the best and most successful outcomes are where you have to, you do the least absolutely necessary to achieve the maximum effect in terms of health benefits on, on all levels. Mm. Sounds like you have very lucky patients. Um, I love what you said there about listening and creating space in a way for people to be recognized but then immediately as you were referring to earlier about self-care and helping people you know move back into a state of uh, homeostasis balance and uh, very empowering and do, do you use tools to ensure that that sort of therapeutic uh, healing occurs you know beyond the clinical setting as well what, what are some of your um you know, practices, tricks of the trade that you use, uh, Ed, to help people heal. Okay, so so obviously the first is the is what we've just said is listening. Um, you have to be very clear. I mean, there's a technical component to this as well, which is really what you spend the years learning. Um, so you have to be become very clear as to what the central issues are with the patient, 
and on a, on a very literal level, if, if, as a doctor, obviously, I want to see if they've got any diagnoses that have been missed and need investigating. So I, I tend to start at that level. Once we've established that, I'm then looking for what would be the most appropriate and safest way to, to help return them to a place of health. And I think the most important thing with that is to involve the patient in that journey uh, and to come up with a plan that's mutually agreed and which works for them. Because if you try to come up with something that's not mutually agreed and they're not going to do, then it's not going to work. Um, I think in, in, in actually helping people to realize that they have a lot of innate abilities to help their own health and signposting to them is really, really important as well. So I think it also starts there. There's no, there's no point in giving um, lots of treatments if the patient is living a lifestyle or, or thinking in a particular way or in a particular social situation where actually whatever you do is going to be undone. Um, now, obviously, you can't always change those situations, so sometimes we just have to accept that and try our best. But in an ideal world, the patient takes on some responsibility. And I think this is one of the key issues and one of the key differences of integrated medicine at its best is it encourages patient empowerment, patient responsibility, um, engendering the motivation and the will within patients and the knowledge to help them get better themselves. Uh, the risk about a drug-based approach or potentially any, any system where it focuses too much on the substance, be it Western drug or herbal medicine or homeopathy or, or nutrition, is that you don't, the patient doesn't make the deeper changes they need to make to help. Now, sometimes you need those very specific approaches of herbal medicine or, or, or some sort of therapeutic input to help them on that journey to get them to a place where they can change. So, so you, you need to get that balance right. Always helping people, sort of nudging them back into, into the right space so their body can do what it does. Absolutely, nudging, I like that word, yeah. So gently, gently encouraging uh, movement towards a, a, a place of greater health and homeostasis. Mm -hmm. And it can appear, can't it, that there are um, different ways of making interventions which are stronger. Should we say, I don't know, some of the herbal laxatives, for example, but, you know, can be a bit aggressive or some of the herbs that make you sweat. And, and I think that's perhaps some of the perception with, uh, you know, modern medicine as well, that some of the interventions are very strong, rightly so, but that, that can lead to some of the side effects. What I really like about what you're saying is this engagement with the individual. And this and this uh, sort of person-centered approach. There isn't one size fits all, and that's the skill of the doctor or, or the the health practitioner to work out what is right for that person, and understanding where the limitations are of your own skill set. In a way, you know, if you're a you know acupuncturist, there's a limit. If you're a nutritionist or herbalist, you know, it, it's understanding that, and. You know, just just to finish off, you know, I wonder, you know, what are some of your hopes for, you know, herbalism, I suppose, or integrated medicine, what, what or medicine as a whole? What, what do you really hope we can move towards in the next few years that would be realistic? Okay, well, I think I think it begins with education. Um, I think it begins with a narrative, a sensible narrative, a balanced narrative that isn't overly biased one way or the other. Um, and the narrative is this, is that actually what matters at the end of the day is the patient and the patient's health. 
And anything that we can do that, self, that safely helps to restore the patient's health should be of the utmost priority to us. And in that spirit, it's important to embrace different approaches in an open-minded way, different paradigms, different, uh, different ideas of what evidence actually is, um, so that medical doctors can learn more about an integrated approach and about some of the CAM modalities, learn more about herbal medicines, um, understand herbal medicines better, maybe be able to use a, a range of herbal medicines. Um, and that, that generally there the can be less of a divide between different professions, that professions can be open-minded towards each other and work to the, the ultimate king and queen, uh, which is our patients. Our patients are our teachers, and, and that's what we need to remember. If we, if we have that compassionate, open-minded um, understanding of our patients, then it can only but lead us to be open-minded to different approaches that may help our patients on their, on their journey, on their life journey. Well, I've uh, you know, read that doctor means teacher, Ed. And um, uh, you've certainly educated me today. And I, I love that way that you, you see the patients as being our, our, our biggest teacher, because um, I'm, sh I'm sure you're spreading a lot of that education and wisdom in your, in your clinic as well. Um, yeah, really interesting to talk and hear your views. Really insightful. I, I hope that, um, yeah, your insights from all the traditions that you've studied and your objectivity and your, your 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 love for the health of the of, of your patients can can spread wider and further because uh, the world needs it. Thank you, Sebastian. That's, thank you. You've been listening to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That'd really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. We'll learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining.